You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 32. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray now that you would indeed have your own way with us, that you would shape us, mold us, and make us into whomever you see fit for your glory and for our own good and joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Good to see you all. If you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to go talk about the first Passover with Caleb and Emily Ward, Uh, You can feel free to head on out this evening. It is really, really great to be back this evening. Two weeks ago, Clint and I were able to represent you all uh, as messengers, as representatives of Christ Church at the Southern Baptist Convention in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, members, you should have received a recap email from us on Saturday morning, last Saturday. Uh, And then you can expect to hear more and ask any questions that you might have at our members meeting on July 24th, but we were so, so encouraged uh, by that meeting. And uh, yeah, if you, if you didn't gather that from that email, we were really, really blessed to have been there. And then after that, I was able to spend a week with uh, my family, with Marcy's parents in Florida. Uh, so sunburns and mosquito bites later, we are glad to be back here in the land of the dry. Um, I actually had a dream on Wednesday night when I was in Florida that uh, 
last week, the week that I wasn't here, you guys started a new tradition to have up all of the newcomers, uh, the visitors here, to introduce themselves. Uh, and I also dreamed uh, that I then after that I got up here to preach and I didn't have any notes. And I don't know which one of those uh, is more of a nightmare. Because visitors, we are glad that you are here tonight, but you can rest assured you can stay seated. And I have some notes, so that's good. Uh, so let's get going. We have uh, been working our way through the book of Exodus, and it has been a blessing to me. As uh, Ryan mentioned earlier, our text that you heard uh, some bit that Jennifer read uh, for tonight really does set the pattern and paradigm for the entire story of the Bible. That is the story of judgment, of danger, of curse, of sin, and yet of simultaneous deliverance, salvation, and life through blood. So we'll look through this next chapter and a half of Exodus 11 and 12 in two sections. First of all, Exodus 11, 1 through 10 as the final warning. And then even though the back of your bulletin says that we're going to get through verse 42, we're just going to get to the first 32 verses of chapter 12, where we'll get to the first Passover. So the final warning and the first Passover. So let's just do it. At the end of chapter 10, after God had shown himself to be the God over all the other Egyptian gods, he had blotted out the sun, he had humiliated the king of the Egyptian gods, the sun god Ra, and Yet still, Pharaoh would still not let Israel go. Pharaoh tells Moses in chapter 10, verse 28, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall surely die. Even though the Egyptian gods have been disarmed, have been disgraced and humiliated, Pharaoh himself is still holding on to some sort of a delusion that he might himself be a god. Like later in chapter 33, when God would tell Moses to hide his face because to see God's full face would mean the death of him, whether it's because Pharaoh's culture has told him his entire life that he's a god or he's actually bought into the hype, he seems to think that he has the ability to bring life or death just by the mere sight of his face. And so God comes to Moses in chapter 11 and tells Moses that God is going to show Israel, he's going to show Pharaoh and the world that Yahweh himself is the God over life and death, not some random king in a random country in North Africa. God is the one who has created humans by breathing life into dust, and he is the one that can remove life from humans by sending them back to the dust. But before getting into specifics, God tells Moses to speak to Israel that all they will have to do is to merely ask for all of the gold and silver jewelry of the Egyptians on their way out. And the Egyptians will do it. Apparently, the everyday Egyptian has grown so impressed with Israel and with their God that the people have gained some favor in the Egyptians' eyes. And who knows their motivation? Maybe they're trying to just buy off Yahweh from just sending one plague after another. Enough is already. Maybe they feel guilty after 400 years or so of slavery and they feel the need for some needed reparation or something. Maybe they, some are like genuinely generous toward their impoverished Hebrew enslaved neighbor and are, want to be generous toward their extraordinary God. In any case, while some Egyptians will end up leaving Egypt with these Israelites, it appears that most of them are content to just not think too poorly of the Israelites, but to not throw in their lot altogether with their God. Perhaps this is you. Perhaps you have observed 
You've observed what you think sure seems to be the power of God in your life, in the world, in some Christians that you've observed. Maybe you think somewhat highly of your Christian friends. You respect them and you'd like to hang out with them as much as you can. Maybe you've even begun attending church services somewhat regularly and you might have even give some, given some money to the church or to some Christian ministry. But to completely identify yourself with Yahweh, to entirely throw your lot in with his people, which then would include renouncing some part of some parts of your identity which seem to be unrenounceable, that seems unthinkable, feels too costly. Well, if this is you, I've been praying for you this week. I've been praying that God would so move you by his spirit, by the end of this evening, you might see and understand and believe your great need enough to say, whatever the cost, give me Jesus. Let's keep moving to see why. Moses, who apparently does, in chapter 11, get another audience with Pharaoh, and surprise, surprise, he doesn't get his face melted off, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark or something, by seeing Pharaoh's face. He says, beginning in verse 4, he tells Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord, that Yahweh, makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, like many other passages in the book of Exodus, this passage, chapter 11 and 12, grates against many of our modern sensibilities of what seems to be reasonable from God. Maybe, like maybe, we could understand God reacting in this kind of way against Pharaoh or against Pharaoh's family, the amount of wickedness, the amount of evil and injustice that this man and his predecessors have thrown against an entire group, an entire nation of people likely merits justice. Not many of us get too bothered by the idea of justice, even justice to the point of death, uh, when we think of Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or any number of other modern-day dictators who are overseeing genocide, even today in areas of the Middle East or in Africa. And here's the thing. We should want God to be a God of justice. We should actually want that. We should want him to not just wink at evil and terror, and genocide in the end. We should not want him to just say, yeah, harden murder, and rape, and genocide, and abuse, and killing of children. No big deal. It's fine. We should not want that. We should want God to be a God of justice and of righteousness. To be otherwise would be an evil God who cares nothing for the good of his creation. But where the story begins to strike us the wrong way, perhaps, is like the Egyptian slave girl who's sitting behind the handmill in chapter 11, or the captive sitting in the dungeon in chapter 12. Like the slave girl, she's working in bondage herself in Egypt. She's working hard behind the handmill when then she herself will receive the devastating news that her firstborn son or daughter is dead. And not just died of natural causes, but that the God of the Hebrews has come and actually killed the firstborn of all of Egypt. Like, how is that a God of love and of grace? Maybe the ancient writers of these Old Testament books, 
They were mistaken in their immature and underdeveloped understanding of who God is. Surely that's the case. Surely we now understand this misunderstanding of an ancient and angry God because he has more clearly revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And Jesus certainly would not have acted in this kind of way, we might think. And so certainly this story is mistaken or uh, some sort of a myth or we don't know what to do with it. Well, first of all, God warned Pharaoh that this would happen in chapter 4 when Moses first comes to Egypt. God, through Moses, tells Pharaoh that if he would not release God's firstborn son, Israel, the firstborn son, the one who is in the place of preeminence, who carries on the family name and honor, Israel, if, if Pharaoh would not release Israel, then God would kill Pharaoh's own firstborn sons, Egypt's firstborn sons. As the previous Pharaoh had killed Israel's sons by throwing them in the Nile, God would come in justice against Egypt. But what is to come is actually more than just uh, mere retribution. It is that, but it's more and deeper. We can also affirm a few reflections of what some have thought through in other passages of death or of justice in the Old Testament. And that is, first of all, that as the maker of all things and the ruler of all people, God has absolute rights and ownership over all peoples and all places. David reflects in Psalm 24, where he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Or I like the CSB translation better in that verse that says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. All of it. Meaning, as the creator, God can do whatever he wants to with the universe and all of the individuals that populate it. And if that rubs you the wrong way, a follow-up might be helpful. Second, God is not only the ultimate maker, ruler, and owner, but he is just and righteous in all that he does. By merely asking the question, is it fair for God to do something, presumes that we are actually a better arbiter or judge of what is right and just in the universe. We are the one a created being, one of seven billion people alive today and one of likely a hundred billion or so people who have ever lived on the earth who gets to be the one to decide what is right and wrong and how God should act. If God passes our test of what we think is right, then we'll leave him be. If not, then at best, he must change and conform to the image of how I want him to be. Or at worst, I'll just dismiss God as evil, irrelevant, or non-existent. That's why it can be so really frustrating sometimes to hear somebody say, well, that's, not just the, that's just not the God that I believe in. And I want to ask, well, who is the God that you believe in and why? How have you decided who and what God is? Is it, your just, is it just your emotions? Is it just your imaginations of what you want God to be? And if it's just your emotions and imaginations, then God is likely just that, imaginary. He is likely just a God that you have created in your own image. It's been said that cultures always look down into a well and worship the God of their own reflection. But God, as he reveals himself in the Bible, is always just and righteous in whatever he does. In reflecting on life and death, and in heaven and hell even, in Romans 9, Paul asks, is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. None. Not one inkling of it. Moses will later say in Deuteronomy 32, he says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he in everything that he does. 
And maybe a third point will bring us even more clarity to the first two, and that is that all of us deserve God's justice, and none of us deserve God's mercy. This is something that we thought through elsewhere in Exodus, but the question is never, how can a loving God send people to hell? Or for our text, how can a loving God apply death and justice? But rather, the question is, how can a just and righteous God allow sinful, allow idolatrous, rebellious, hateful, angry, selfish, all of it? We could just keep going with the descriptors of us. How could he allow we kind of wicked people into heaven. Or for our text, how could God keep allowing such wicked people, all of them, to keep living? In his masterpiece, The Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart, meaning we are quick to blame the problems of the world on others while ignoring the manifold ways that we contribute. We see evil and injustice and selfishness all the time in the world, and we demand justice, but we never, never demand the same justice for ourselves. Like, don't believe me? Just consider the wild, wild double standards that you have for drivers. If, if you are in a hurry and you need to grab something quick from the grocery store and there is a parking spot that someone is clearly in front of you and moving toward, but you are in a massive hurry, you justify to yourself, it's okay. And so you zip right on, zip right in in front of this person. But if someone were to do that to you, Woe to that man. Like laying on the horn, perhaps posting a social media post of how rudeness has overcome the world in America these days. You would want this person to be hauled away and publicly flogged for their sin and injustice against you. But you would have felt justified had you done the same thing to someone else. The same is true, not just in parking spots, but in all forms of sin. We nearly always feel justified in our sin, but then are very quick to observe and condemn the very same sin in others. And so Paul in Romans 3 says that all humans, every single one of us, has hatred and death in our hearts and in our mouths and in our actions against others and against God, whom he has created, he has created us to love and the payment that all of that earns is death, just as punching your brother earns a different scale of consequence than punching the president. Brazen and lifetime offense and rejection of the eternal God of life warrants and earns eternal death. And so as we thought through three weeks ago, there is no innocent man on the desert island. There is no innocent slave girl behind the handmill. There is no innocent daughter of the slave girl behind the handmill. In response to our sin, the question is not if we are going to die, but when. And every breath and heartbeat that we sinful people receive is only grace, is only because of God's mercy. The next beat of your heart, the next inhale that you take into your lungs is God's grace and his mercy. 
And yet despite this final warning from God, Pharaoh still will not listen. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So after the final warning of chapter 11, we now turn the page toward the first Passover of Exodus 12. The first Passover. In Spencer Brown's excellent sermon from Revelation 19 last week, he introduced it with, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And he showed eventually that the second coming of Christ will simultaneously be a day of glory and of joy for some, but it will also be a day of judgment and of dread and of dread for others. Which, by the way, shows extraordinary continuity between the so-called God of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament. But this first Passover was equally the best of times, and it is simultaneously the worst of times. The worst of times for Egypt, where we read in chapter 11, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But it will also be the best of times for Israel. Centuries later, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 136, which is a call and response song, this, the, the leader of this song would tell of something that God, would, God has done in history, and then the congregation would respond with, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 1 says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then the congregation would all sing, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it goes on through creation. And then it gets to verse 10, where the psalmist, the song leader says, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them. Everybody, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. It was because of the love of God to save his children that he struck down the firstborn of Egypt. It's because God's steadfast love endures forever that he brought Israel out of Egypt. I've mentioned before that we Americans get really uncomfortable with this idea of the judgment of God, especially with some of the imprecatory psalms, those psalms that many of the psalmists write that are asking, that are begging God to come and act in justice, where he would come and strike their enemies. But I would imagine that our brothers and sisters, our Christian brothers and sisters in Nigeria who are dying almost daily at the hands of their oppressors, or even right now with the utter crisis that is going on in Sudan. I would imagine the untold millions of Christians who have suffered for their faith in Christ throughout the centuries, that they feel more at home with the language and tone of the imprecatory psalms, with this judgment language. Not because they are filled with hatred for their oppressors, their persecutors, but because they long for God to finally act. They long for God to not remain silent forever. And they long for him to act not, out of, not in out of control or reckless anger, but in controlled judgment because his steadfast love endures forever. And so God comes to Israel with his rescue plan for them. This would finally be the straw that breaks the camel's back, that Pharaoh would finally, because of the massive amount of death and judgment that he sees before him in his country, to finally let God's son, to finally let Israel go. God comes with a plan for deliverance and salvation, but the fact that there needed to be a plan at all had to have been startling for some of these Israelites. After all, for many of the most recent plagues, they had sat comfortably 
in the land of Goshen, watching, perhaps likely even with glee, as the Egyptians sat under boils and hail and darkness. Israel was exempt from these plagues, distinguished by God and set apart from judgment. But here, in chapter 12, God tells Israel through Moses and Aaron, beginning in verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here, Israel finds that they don't just need deliverance from the evil coming from within Egypt— If that's all that was needed, God would have just brought this plague of death on the Egyptians. Instead, Israel finds out that they they also need deliverance from the evil coming from within each individual heart. They are equally guilty. They have been equally hard-hearted toward God, toward Moses. Later in Joshua 24, as the people are finally entering the promised land, Joshua tells these, this next generation of Israelites, he tells them to put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and instead serve the Lord. Joshua says, your fathers, this generation, the one who is in Egypt now, are worshiping all sorts of kind, all sorts of Egyptian gods, all sorts of other idols. They are equally idolatrous as the Egyptians. And as we'll see, as we keep moving through Exodus, they will continue to be just as idolatrous and as selfish and as wicked as the Egyptians. And so, as many have reflected throughout the years, God comes in the Passover more than to get Israel out of Egypt, but more to get the Egypt out of Israel. In fact, chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that this event will now mark the beginning of the Hebrew calendar. They are to completely reorient their calendar to mark and remember this moment forever. This moment will be a New Year's Day for the rest of Israel's history, a hard break and a new beginning from Egypt. And so the plan of redemption, the plan of life under the threat of judgment and death is blood. Each family is to select a year-old lamb without any blemish, without any defect, a lamb in its prime that could be used for any number of ways useful ways in the life of this culture. And instead, they are to kill this lamb. And don't just fly past that. They're to grab a cute and buying lamb, grab the top of its head, pull up its head to expose its throat and slice it. The blood pressure of this lamb that's coursing through the veins and the arteries would have been good and great enough to quickly, quickly fill fill a large bowl with blood. That is gross. That certainly strikes against our modern sensibilities. They're to take that blood with a hyssop branch with this blood in a bowl and they're to smear it all over the sides and the top of the doorframe of their houses. And for every household who has smeared this blood, trusting in it to cover the sin of those who are inside, God would not seek out the death of the firstborn. But instead, God says in verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall or destroy you. If you're new to the Bible and or are unsure about the goodness or the trustworthiness of the Bible, a story like this one might initially be very unsettling. I mean, it kind of feels archaic and barbaric. 
all this blood, all this death everywhere, especially with some perfectly innocent little lamb. What did it ever do? But what might initially be interpreted as barbarism should actually come as a comforting assurance that there is no sin that can remain hidden. God is a God of justice. Just because there is greater evil and greater wickedness across the street in Egypt, just because the more subtle and hidden sin of more respectable sin and more respectable people can be just that, more hidden and respectable, it will still be confronted and judged. God will not wink at sin, no matter its form or its volume, and say, eh, just forget it. He is a God of righteousness against all sin, the kinds of sin that we asked God to forgive us of in our confession earlier in the service, the sins of our youth, the sins of our age, the sins of our soul, the sins of our body, our secret and whispering sins, our proud and careless sins, the sins we have done to please others or ourselves and the sins that we have done to please others, the sins that we know and even the sins that we don't know. There will be death for treason and sin. But the reason that all this blood and all this death is comforting and not terrifying is that because God takes sin so seriously, thankfully, he also provides a way of life for his people through death. Life and death is not a flippant and a barbaric thing for God. In fact, it is quite the opposite. This Passover story ripples forward and backward in the biblical story from the first sin in Genesis 3 where God covers the nakedness and the shame and the sin of Adam and Eve by making them clothing from the skins of animals to Genesis 22 where instead of Abraham sacrificing his own firstborn son, God intervenes, interrupts, and provides his own sacrifice of the ram. Abraham names that place the Lord will provide. And then forward from this event, as we'll see in the institution of this annual meal of remembrance called Passover, where every single year Israel would take again, again a lamb, each per household. They would sacrifice it. They would eat of this meal, the meal of this lamb and of unleavened bread. More on that next week. But they would do this to remember God's great deliverance, not just out of Egypt, but out of sin. Not only to teach children and coming generations of what God had done in Egypt, for sure, we see that in 12, 26, and 27. This is an event that is meant to be a teaching moment for what God has done for children and for future generations, but also to remind themselves, to remind ourselves of what God has done. I read this week in reflecting on the annual rhythm of Passover. The Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu. I know I've forgotten this before. Or even I remember forgetting this before. And so God institutes Passover to cut deep grooves within Israel's souls. Deep grooves of death and life. Of slavery and of deliverance. Of life and death. Of freedom through blood. But this night in Egypt and the annual feast which followed was always meant to point us forward to a night of greater Passover and deliverance. By the time of King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 35, we read that 35,000 sheep were sacrificed on the night that he reinstituted Passover. 35,000. That's a lot of blood. 
The ancient historian Josephus tells us that by the time that the Romans are in Jerusalem, several hundred thousand lambs would be herded throughout the streets of Jerusalem each year. A lot of blood. And it kept having to happen over and over and over again. The author of the book of the Hebrews says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What the people needed was a better blood. What the people needed was a more precious blood from a more effective and a more supernatural lamb. And so on the day that we call Palm Sunday, the day in Jerusalem when all of Israel's households would be out and about in Jerusalem trying to find their year-old lamb, their lamb without blemish, to pick and select for their own family, Jesus of Nazareth rides into town in humility, effectively saying, pick me. The lamb without blemish. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4 says, in every respect he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Pontius Pilate, even the Roman governor, said, I find no guilt in him. I find no blemish. So at his crucifixion, as he, as Hebrews 9 said, at his crucifixion, he offered himself without blemish to God. Unlike the countless lambs who had been offered in Israel's history against their will, this one offered himself. Being both God and man, and offering a better and more effective blood. Not just to cause death to pass over, but to utterly and completely forgive sin, finally and forever. Paul says in Romans 5, we have been justified by his blood, or in Ephesians 1 that Ryan read earlier, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Or in 1 Peter 1, you are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Many Christians these days are trying to get rid of all this blood stuff. It seems too outdated, archaic, and barbaric, but we must never get rid of the blood. This is why blood is not barbaric, but rather assuring. I just read a pastor today saying, without it, without the death, without the substitutionary bloody death of Christ, we will be left flipping a coin whether God will actually save us or love us. We will be as preteen girls with a flower petal, thinking he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Based on the day and the whim of my obedience or my disobedience. But we sang earlier of that rugged cross being our salvation fully and finally because of the death. All the way, death, the bloody substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for you and me. The Lord has provided a lamb. The Passover, if I might be so 21st century evangelical, the Passover is about getting saved. Passover is about getting saved from sin, delivered from slavery, redeemed from condemnation and of judgment. We'll think more next week on the institution of the Passover meal and its transformation into the Lord's Supper. But maybe tonight, as you come to the table, you might tell yourself as you tear a piece from the bread, the Lord has provided a lamb. He has covered my sin, and he will pass over in judgment. But for tonight, are you actually trusting in the blood of the Lamb to cover your sin? 
It is not a question of if you will die, but when. As Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I don't often get very fire and brimstone up here, but there is judgment coming. It is appointed for every man, every woman, to die once, and after that comes judgment. You are not guaranteed another decade of life, much less tomorrow. You are not guaranteed that you will make it home to your bed tonight. Seriously, your heart might not make it three more hours. And none of our sins can remain hidden. None of our sins, no matter how much less we think that our sin is compared to the sins of others, no sin will remain undealt with. But the Lord has provided a lamb. He has provided a way of salvation for you tonight. Don't go one more night. One more night that you might not have without doing real business with your sin and with the God who is able to forgive it. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe tonight as you observe those who are trusting in the blood of the Lamb on their behalf, maybe you would just silently pray. You would pray and tell God that you are a sinner. You very often, like we all do, minimize your own sin by comparing it to the sins of others, but that you know that you have not loved God or loved your neighbor as he has created you. You might thank him for providing a way of life through death, through the life and death of the firstborn son, the firstborn Christ Jesus. And you might ask God tonight to forgive you of your sin through him. And here's the good news. It wasn't the strength of the faith of the people within these individual houses that saved them. I'm sure there were many who were afraid that night. I'm sure there were many who, as they heard the screams and groans outside, they were half-filled or fully filled even with doubt and with fear, with worry, but they stayed inside. They trusted in God's faithfulness to his promises to actually pass over. They trusted in the death of the lamb that it would actually mean their life and their redemption, however weak their trust and their faith in that moment might have been. God is ready and God is welcoming of weak faith. 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So whether in an an initial way tonight, or if your faith you found is still quite weak after many years of trusting in Christ, stay inside. Stay inside and rest in comfort and in trust in the blood of the Lamb which covers you. We want to grow together. We want to grow as the people of God together in our trust, in, in our trust not just in the strength of our faith, but in our trust in the strength of the one who is actually able to save. The strength of the one who has bled and died to save us once and for all. For his steadfast love endures forever, and he will forever be faithful to his promises. I hope that you're trusting in this blood. I hope this 
first Passover meal is now just thrown wide open into wide open doors of life and of freedom and of comfort and of assurance and of confidence in this Lord's Supper that we will partake in tonight. We've got much more to think through next week in this first Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So perhaps even uh, keep reading through the end of chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 13 this week as you consider these things. Let's come back next week and let's continue to let God shape us, inform us, and strengthen our faith together. Let's pray that he would. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have offered yourself as our Passover lamb, who for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. You despised your own shame, that you might deliver us from sin and bring us to God. That you, the firstborn son, can now usher us into the very family of God, your younger brothers and sisters, that we might share in the life and the inheritance of the firstborn. We share in your inheritance, now ours, finally and fully, because of what you have accomplished on our behalf, as our substitute, as our advocate, as our shepherd, king, and friend. Forgive our sins, O God. Forgive them all because of your great goodness. I even pray now tonight that those who have perhaps been close to you and close to your people, observing, perhaps even remaining on the periphery, that tonight you might make them your people. That by their trust in the blood of the Lamb, tonight might be the night of salvation. Bring life tonight, God. That your name might be great among us and among the nations. And the power of the precious and the effective blood of Christ. We pray all of these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.